Thank you for joining our podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. Stay tuned as together we'll study God's Word. given 24 hours a day. We sleep one third of it. We spend part of the time with family and friends and the rest of the time is at work. We spend more time at work than we do doing any other single thing. I just can't believe that God doesn't have a higher purpose for us. I own a design intensive construction company and most of our work focuses on older residential buildings, mostly from the 1920s in our neighborhood. There are properties that have been completely neglected for many, many years. We love this neighborhood and where there's the potential to restore a house rather than tear it down, we're gonna pursue that. When I go to work each day, I just pray that God will help me to do my very best. The closer in relationship I am with God, the better able I am to be my best at work. How many, do you have your tape? Tell me how deep it is again, this wall. Ooh, ooh, that's tight. Did this wall get shorter? As the person in charge of the site, I want to exemplify high quality relationships. And I want to do excellent work. When I meet a new subcontractor at work, I want to be in an authentic relationship with that person. Hey, Ina. How are you? Good. Well, you okay? Yeah, doing good. Good. I don't see my very best friends as often as I see the people with whom I work on the job site. So I take those relationships very seriously. And then we load this on the way you want it. It looks great. Really. Looks great. Thank you so much for doing that. Yeah, looks great. There's a responsibility towards excellence because I wouldn't be comfortable putting myself out there as a Christian and doing shoddy work. You know, I was originally really hoping to get glass up here. How, how hard would that be? Well, I can get those out for sure. I've heard so many times from people who've said that they really could not stand their contractor by the time their construction project was completed. I certainly don't want to be that contractor. I want my work to be a reflection of my faith in God. We often get the message that in order to do godly work, we need to be pastors or evangelists or Sunday school teachers. I don't feel gifted to be a pastor, but I do feel strongly gifted to build homes, and I want to use that work to honor God.
It's satisfying to have taken a property that was an eyesore and a problem within its community and to restore it. I built great relationships with my team and we did excellent work. We as people, as God's creations, are a reflection of Him. If our output to the world is, is our work, then we want it to continue that reflection. I believe this process is a high calling. Right? We're doing this series called uh, Made for Mondays. Jesus didn't die on a cross, my friends, so that you could have inspiration for an hour a week. He died on a cross so your life would be transformed. And that transformation is not going to just happen in here. As a matter of fact, I would tell you, greater transformation happens outside of this experience than what you have here. God wants to use it all to transform your life. And as you're being transformed, as we say when we close our service, as you experience healing, others will be healed through you. It's a beautiful thing. Our theme verse is John 5:17. Jesus said this. He said, "The Father, God the Father, is always at work." And then he said, "I too am working." And so we open talking about a theology of work, that all work is God's design. Work is God's design. Work was in the plan in the Garden of Eden in paradise before sin entered the world. Work didn't happen as a result of sin. Sin influenced work, but work was the design. A thousand years from now, you know what you're going to be doing if you know Christ in eternity? Working. We're going to be working in this coming kingdom, the new earth. We're not going to be up there with little wings and halos floating around. We are going to be put to work. It's going to be glorious, creating culture, creating beauty, creating architecture. It'll be unbelievable. Um, so uh, we're talking about that. So Paul wrote this letter that we're looking at today to a struggling church in a huge city called Ephesus. And this church, I don't know if you know this, but these letters, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, these churches didn't meet in buildings like this. They didn't show videos like that. They met in little homes. They were in the extreme minority in a culture. These homes were called households. And in the Roman Empire, which the church grew in, there was these things called household codes. Romans created these household codes. Paul wrote to the church and he picked up on that cultural phenomena, household, household codes, and he said, you know what? As a church, you're a little community within a larger community. You're to be a counter-cultural community within a larger city. So I'm going to give you some household codes. And so that's what we're going to dive into in Ephesians chapter 6. It's called a household code. I've said it three times now. There's seven of them in the New Testament where Paul wrote to different cities. And he mentioned slaves. And so I need to stop and just take a little bit of time and do some work before we jump into the text because this verse has been misinterpreted in heinous ways. Uh, and even today, uh, the, the new atheists, as they're called, who are prolific in their writing, point to verses like this. And they say, well, I've got a, I've got a quote from one. Can we go to that? Uh, this is from Sam Harris. He says, consult the Bible and you'll discover that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. 
And what I want to do is explain the difference of slavery in the Roman Empire with what we think of and the greatest evil ever to come on earth, the transatlantic slave trade in the 18th, 17th, 19th century. And let alone the fact that 22 million people as I speak are being held in slavery around the world today, much greater than the transatlantic slave trade. Paul is not talking about that when he says, teaches what he teaches. What he's trying to teach is this. Well, let me tell you about slavery in the Roman Empire. Um, Close to 30 to 40% of people in the Roman Empire, if you look at page one, you're going to see what I'm talking about here, were held as slaves. Slavery was completely different in the Roman Empire than it was uh, what we think of. Uh, And it was um, held in this way. Uh, Slaves weren't, as you can see, weren't race-based. Uh, The slavery of the Roman Empire was when Rome conquered a neighboring country or expanded its territory. Rather than kill them, they incorporated these people into the Roman Empire. Slaves weren't for life. They would serve as slaves for 7 to 10 years, maybe 15 years, and then be released into the Roman Empire. Uh, Slaves weren't based on a systematic hunting, looking for people, kidnapping them against their will. It was a war uh, situation, which is how the world functioned. Then lastly, and really importantly, slaves in the Roman Empire weren't without rights. Uh, Slaves could go to court against their master if they were treated unjustly. Slaves owned land, some slaves did. Slaves were doctors and uh, in the higher echelons of what we think of as culture. Now, I'm not saying it was better. I'm not saying it was even right. I'm just saying it was different. And Paul's writing, if you can imagine, the Ephesian culture to this small fledgling church that was meeting in this base one-story home with a bunch of different rooms called a household. And in this household were parents, usually the parents of parents, kids, and then servants. And they would meet as a church in this amazing city called Ephesus, which contained one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis or Dionysus. And every night this temple made the Parthenon pale in comparison in its structure. And every night, thousands of temple prostitutes would leave the temple and work their trade in the city every night. This city was rocked by an earthquake uh, in like 3 BC and Rome was sending money to rebuild it. And Ephesus said, we're so rich, we don't want your money. And they rebuilt it themselves with a huge amphitheater you can see this day that held 30,000 people, a coliseum, a library, which was the envy with thousands of scrolls. You can still see it. They've only unearthed a third of the Roman Empire of of Ephesus. And what they've unearthed is unbelievable. And so here's a small church that's meeting that someone comes into and says, hey, Paul wrote us a letter. And they're reading it in this church. And what he's saying is this. Here's how you function Monday through Friday. Here's how you make it on Monday. Here's how you take care of business and how you see what you do in a greater way as God calling you to that. Now, later on in the Bible, it would talk about how to reform culture. And if you know your history, you know the slavery I spoke of in the 17th, 18th, 19th century was abolished because followers of Christ disguised as parliamentarians named William Wilberforce or disguised as uh, congressmen and women, well, not women in that time, or the president of the United States, like Abraham Lincoln, saw themselves as being raised up by God to change culture. 
This isn't what this verse is addressing, okay? Are we all clear? I, I really want to be clear on that. Half of us are clear. Okay, let's just move into Ephesians 6 and we'll get there, okay? So, uh, by the way, what changed? Uh, if you go to Galatians 3.28, in uh, places like Ephesus, in these households where the church would meet, would be a city within a city, a culture within a culture that was extremely countercultural. And Paul would give this mandate. Friends, this was radical in its day. And I am, I am not overstating it because I think God is calling us as the body of Christ to live counterculturally. I know he is. With the culture we're living in, we are to live separate and better from the culture we live in Monday through Friday. This is a countercultural outcropping right here. Paul said, when you gather, remember what I told you about the Roman Empire. He said, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's no ethnic breakdown when you come into that household. There's neither. Here it is. This is radical. Nowhere else in the Roman Empire did this exist. When you gather as a church, there's not a slave or a free among you. There isn't even gender distinction before God. There's neither male nor female. Nor is there uh, any of that. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So when the church gathered in the first century, you know what would happen? Masters would be serving slaves communion. And men would be washing the feet of women. And it was a called out, completely radically different community. Historians have written hundreds of books, maybe thousands, on how is it that a small fledgling community like the church ultimately in three centuries toppled the Roman Empire. And you know what they point to? This ethic. The way the church was countercultural and the way the church served on the margins. And even when they were uh, beat to a pulp, burned alive, impaled and lit on fire, they didn't retreat. They kept moving forward because they really believed that God had a purpose for their life. Can I ask you a question? And I don't say this as if we're not, but I just say this to remind us. Can we be countercultural again? Sociologists say that 95% of the peninsula doesn't identify with Jesus Christ in any way. 95%. How in the world are they going to know of God's love, that Jesus died for them, that there's new life available in Christ and an eternity separate from what they're headed towards? I'm just going to tell you, it's not going to happen by us opening the doors and doing better programs. And we're working on doing better programs on Sunday. But look around. Last time I checked... A third of the auditorium is empty. The city isn't flooding into the church for a lot of reasons. That's not what this is about. But could it be that God is one step ahead and knew that we'd be in hard soil in this time? And so his plan is for us to go to the city for us to reframe what we do Monday through Friday, to take what Kimberly said and understand that I'm not the only one with a high calling. You have a high calling too, to be salt and light in the community. That's what today's about. How are you gonna live that? Well, turn to page two and let's answer that question. What did Paul say to them? How did they do it in Ephesus? If they did it in Ephesus, we can do it today, I promise you. Because we have it, uh, in no way is ours harder. It's challenging, but no way is it harder than what they had. If they were motivated in the first century, you go to work, 
uh, there's hope for us, okay? Here's the first thing. Rethink your vocation. Listen, I'm going to be real simple and straight to the point, okay? And here's the first. Rethink your vocation. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Look what it says. Serve half-heartedly. Is that what it says? No, no, no. He's saying to them, gathered in this church, in this city that was over. I am telling you, they're the ethics of Ephesus make us look modest in comparison as a peninsula. Um, it was so extreme compared to our immorality, which I think is pretty extreme in our culture. Paul is saying, when you go to work tomorrow morning, you rethink what you do. You serve wholeheartedly as if, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to take their face and lift it up and say, you are doing more significant work than just Monday to Friday shows you. You're serving the Lord not people. What if you really believe that? Just sit for a minute. Oh, my friends, what if you really believe whatever you're called to do tomorrow, whether it's, it's parenting, foster parenting, working wherever you work, whether you're a student, if you really believe, I'm working for God. Not people. You know that the Lord, because you know the Lord will reward. Again, do you see what he's doing? He's taking them and saying, there is a greater ethic than your paycheck, than a standard of living than a retirement package, than a benefits package, than, than a way of life. There is something awaiting you in eternity that is much greater than what this earth provides. C.S. Lewis wrote 50, 60, almost 70 years now. He was a Brit, one of my favorite authors. Uh, during World War II, Lewis gave these speeches to England and these speeches were captured in a book that I think should be standard reading for anyone going to college and every adult. Next to the Bible, it's probably one of the top five books that have influenced my life. It's called Mere Christianity. And he says, you look at the history of the world and he's defending um, how Christians are so, and I, this is so, hits me, so worldly infiltrated. He says, you know what? You look at the history of the world and the issue with followers of Jesus and the reform that was made through the followers of Jesus, it was not that they were too heavenly-minded. He says, the problem is we're not heavenly-minded enough. Lewis tracks all the great reforms from Christians in the world, and he points back to one irreducible minimum. They had their sights set on a different kingdom. And they really believed that what they did Monday to Friday was a calling from God. That you're not doing what you're doing because you got the right education or you had the right interview skills or you had the right grades. But God handpicked you for that campus, for that neighborhood, for that place of employment. Um, I don't know what your go-to breakfast is. I'm a Heritage Flakes guy. Okay? So what does this mean if, if people think about this? I, I was thinking about this. I mean, I'm telling you, I... I Go through a couple boxes a week. I love Heritage Flakes. I don't even know all that's in here. What is a kamut? What is smelt? I, it's, it's like a fish or something. I don't know. It can't be in here. Okay, so I was thinking about this and thinking about the farmer that farms the wheat that's in Heritage Flakes and her motives. I wonder if she knows she's fueling a pastor on the peninsula through her farming. And I wonder if that would make her think differently about how she farms that wheat. Or think about the conveyor worker, who that's the best job he can get for a number of reasons. Sit on the, on the line of heritage flakes and pull out 
the burnt heritage flakes. I wonder what would be different if he knew he's actually energizing uh, the word of God going out on half to two-thirds of the Sundays out of Peninsula Covenant Church because he's keeping a quality control that keeps me buying this product. See, we just don't know the ripple effect of what we do. What would it really change if you did? If you really believe that what you're doing is building the kingdom of God through quality work. That's the subpoints under point one. When you believe your work is a calling by God, it raises the standard for your work. I love how Kimberly put it. She doesn't, she's not called to be a pastor, but that's not the only thing God calls people to. He's calling you to do what you did Monday through Friday. Your work is a calling. And as we've seen with the empty pews, and, and I'll show you later on in the message, God brings people your way through the product of your work and through your interactions with the workforce that you work with to grow his kingdom. You understand that, it'll change. I'm telling you, it'll change. Uh, it'll change a new standard for your work. Colossians chapter 3 Verse 23 to 24, look what it says. That's not in your notes. Colossians 3, 23 to 24, it says, look what it says. Whatever you do, there's that word again. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. What would be different if you saw your boss as the Lord Jesus Christ? and you looked at his standard for your work, it will change what you do. I'm telling you, I was meeting with a guy yesterday who's in the tech world and does coding and is stepping into management, and he was saying, gosh, we were talking about this very thing. He says, gosh, I want to code for the glory of God. I want to manage for the glory of God. See, your worth, my friends, is not just the income you make and the tithe that you give to the church. We need your tithe. That's not your only worth in God's economy. Your worth is not just serving around here. We need you to serve. But God has you where he has you to flow through you and whatever you're passionate about, create it in an excellent way. Create it in an excellent way. Your product will be different. Secondly, um, look what it says here. It creates a new standard for how you see your coworkers. This is so important. It, it will actually flip the org chart on its head because you won't see people the same way. When you understand that you've been called by God, you'll see them with new eyes. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, uh, again, if you're taking notes, it's not in your notes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 to 16. Paul said, Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive his new life no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. And then Paul said this, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 to 16. In other words, Paul said, when I came to Christ, it's like he put a lens on my eyes. I started seeing people differently. And I can't see anyone the same way. Where this applies to us 2,000 years later in the West, we all work within an org chart. But that doesn't define you 
or your workers if you're a follower of Christ. If you're a student, it doesn't define whether you're a student, there's a teacher. You have a higher calling, and through Christ, you see everybody as loved by God, an image bearer of God, and a candidate for restoration by God through Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? So important. And that leads to the second point, my final point. That when you see Monday morning as a calling, you rethink the org chart. Look what he said in Ephesians 6. Now, now we'll get to the passage. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. With respect, that was so countercultural in the city of Ephesus. Slaves didn't respect their masters. They were prisoners of war. Why would they respect their masters? No, no, it's different in the church. Because think about it with me. How are those masters going to come to know Christ? Unless they see it lived out. What good is talking about Christ when our life contradicts the power that we claim Jesus gives us? Paul's saying, you know what? They didn't have a Bible in that day. They didn't have the four spiritual laws or any way to reach people for Christ. The only way to reach people for Christ was to live it out in the community and to be so radically countercultural through their life. That's what Paul's getting at. You guys are doing this. Many of you are doing this so well with fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now look at this, verse 6. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. That's radical. This completely does away with an org chart and says, yeah, you got to hold people accountable, all that, but that's just an earthly thing. From a heavenly standpoint, you're different. I wish you could meet uh, a woman that used to be part of PCC. Her name was Judy. And Judy had a very unhealthy relationship. Not that there's a healthy one, but with meth. She was addicted to meth. And um, I remember running into Judy at coffee shops, and I didn't know her, uh, but sadly, I, I just looked at her from a worldly standpoint. Meth destroys you, and it was destroying her. Uh, And I don't know what happened to Judy, but someone saw her different than I did, and someone loved her, and someone led Judy to Christ. And Judy went from chaos and destruction to being restored. She entered into a recovery program and started uh, working her program and entered into sobriety, and that's when she joined our community as she was working her program. Jesus was her higher power. And the only job Judy could get because of a lot of circumstances was being a checker at a pet store. And she really caught hold of what we were doing. We did a series like this about 15 years ago and and, and Judy caught hold of it and thought, oh my gosh, what would happen if I prayed uh, for every person that came through my line? And what would happen if I did my checking for the glory of God? Judy's line became one of the most popular lines at Petco. And one night, it was right here, it was a Sunday night, she waited and we were talking. She goes, you won't believe what happened this week. She goes, I was praying for people in my line and, and a man came through and he really looked distraught. And there were a lot of people in her line. She said, I just stopped and said, are you okay? He said, I'm not doing okay. And she said, I took a step of faith and I said, I just want you to know I pray for everybody that comes through my line. I'm gonna pray for you. And the man asked her, when do you get off work? She said, I'd have a break in a half hour. He waited. And during that break, Judy started a conversation which ultimately led to that man receiving Christ and being transformed. And she said, Gary, it's the greatest thing. 
Uh, I, I shared this at Hudson, and I got a text from someone in Hudson that wrote me and said, hey, I just want you to know, because Judy moved on from our community. He said, Judy's still sober. Judy's still working at a pet store, and she's still being used by God. Well, how does that happen? Because she sensed that she had a calling beyond being a pet co-checker or a pet co-manager. And she saw people differently. How would that change Monday morning if you really believed you were part of the family business? That God has a call on your life, in your neighborhood, in your home, just start there. In your neighborhood, where you recreate, where you work. That God wants to use you in great ways. I just want to give you one application. Begin with prayer. Do what Judy did. Before you get out of your car or before you get off the train or however you get to work, just pause and say, God, may your kingdom come and may your will be done through me. Pray the Lord's Prayer. And then look at your org chart. Pray up it to your supervisor. Pray down it to the people that report to you, the people you serve. You do that, I'm telling you, it's going to make a difference. Let's pray. God, our heart's desire is that we too would be countercultural. And um, I, I don't want to put a do at the end of this sermon. I, I want to put a be. This is who we are. I pray we would live into it. That tomorrow morning, even today at 1230, when we enter into our homes and neighborhoods or places to eat, we would see people differently. That that prayer that you taught us, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done through me, would influence the work of our hands and how we view people. We don't want to be hearers, Lord. We want to be doers. Thank you that you called each one of us to be ministers on this peninsula, disguised by whatever our LinkedIn profile says. Let us trust you and follow you, we pray in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to our message podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. We would love the opportunity to connect with you more. We are located in Redwood City, California, and you can find us online at wearepcc.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by simply searching for We Are PCC.